Hi, so I'm not one of the authors. Um, I'm Janice Lee. I'm the editor of the Recurrent series. Um, so I just want to thank everyone for coming out tonight to celebrate the launch of the series um, at Civil Coping Mechanisms. Um, oh, hi. <laughs> um, and then to celebrate the release of these two books, um, Gaijin and Blindspot. Um, so I don't really want to say too much um, about the about the series. I think um, the authors will sort of speak for themselves. Um, but I will just say the series is sort of an ongoing series. Um, what the series is sort of seeking to do is look for writing that's sort of gesturing towards intimacy in different ways in writing. And I think both of these books um, that we'll hear from tonight do that. Um, so I'm going to ask up actually Laura Venna, who worked really closely with Jordan and guest editing Gaijin, um, to introduce Jordan to you guys. Hi there. <laughs> Thank you, Janice and CCM, for inviting me to guest edit a remarkable manuscript. It's a pleasure to be in such great company and to introduce Jordan and her beautiful first book, Gaijin. Jordan Okamura is a bone writer, and her novel Gaijin is an excavation, a story of tongue and breath, or as Lydia Yuknovich puts it, a body song that attempts to calibrate the measure of the self inside grief. The novel, which simultaneously tracks a personal rupture and a family loss, is tethered inside and around trauma and forged with what the writer calls a level of honesty that terrified me. A daughter, a granddaughter, a woman, a survivor. This is the hero of Gejin, a blunt and alarmingly honest accounting of scars and blows to the spirit. The narrative bravely plows forward in reconciling two desperate, disparate sources of grief in order to heal them. One, a painful and awkward reclamation of the self after sexual violence, and the other, an evocation of a patriarch who is half-dreamed, half-real. In a style that straddles genres, part memoir, part mythology, and part eulogy to a grandfather, Gejin tries to articulate the inarticulatable. Labile, alluvial, fricative, abrasive, Joyelle McSweeney writes about Gejin. It cuts a channel through stone, which takes the shape of its own persistence. I want to say your name with a rock beneath my tongue. It stages and restages memory to pinpoint the exact site where the skin broke and the shard sank in, then gestures towards a moment after, wherein this wound, inverted, might become both shield and sword. What does it mean to have a hand in one's own erasure? Asks Banu Kapil, who describes the book as an index of fire and water, and the site of wet erosion, tongueless, where stories pour out, beautiful in their heat. The poetry and aching of Gajin is powerful, crushing. In this exquisite and excruciating novel, words pile up against voicelessness, and a persistent refusal to descend into despair ensures that there is always a glimmer in the yearning. Please help me wel welcome Gordon, Jordan Okamura. Yes! Thank you everyone for coming. 
really appreciate it. Does that sound all right? <laughs> all right, just gonna jump in. Start at the beginning. Grandpa, we are stones in each other's shoes. In your house, I am a pirate. I need my skin to rupture. I am told to be a narrow girl, able to fit through distressed doorways, a breath through the keyhole. Pressing against white grain walls and brown paisley wallpaper, I duck into the rooms of my grandfather. He is in a box, collecting the skin of his children. He sucks at the air when fine-tuned cousins slide past his body in late September, then retreat into shadows, reflections in a diorama of dust. Grandpa still sits above the tallest head framed in stained oak, entombed in artifacts, between photos of family wrapped in family. When I close my eyes, Grandpa, I dream I am the little peach boy, his body covered in the soft flesh fruit, his eyes swimming with the brown of pit. I dream that I am wrapped in the falling language of your language. The story Grandma read to me from the pages of Japanese books, her fingers falling down the thin black symbols. Small animals scratching marks through the skin of the page. The body claws, the body silent. I want to be a palette of morning light. Run red with blood, Grandpa. Eat from the small white wrists of your little peach boy. Watch the water run home. I'm spun in a house of laughter, muted by hands. Always moving from room to room, I follow the dimming light. Grandpa's chair is stitched maroon, broad-shouldered, its weathered paws wearing away at the carpet and hardwood. He is still there, prophesying from the corner. When he died underneath Grandma's last prayer, 500 miles away and two streets toward the end of western land, I stole one single breath against a draft of salt and late summer heat. Tracing a cement snake along overcast cliffs, dropping to suicide surfers, the corners of my mouth began to taper in. Water wrapping against the residual rock, the questioning hammer of tapping fingers, the edges of wrinkled coast. If the rock gave way under my feet, it would be like falling into the, it would be like falling into the sun, into pools of kerosene. A face licking the water, cliffs that began to ignite. To forget how to remember, balance a palm on the edge of Mama's rose-tinted mirror without eating the surface of these stories. Peel back the images that lay are speaking. To be spoken by these men in my family would name me. Grandpa cursed me. Loved women. Tighten his hand. I was a woman dressed to the marrow in Portuguese blood and Japanese vein. These wounds will open for the wrong things, child. Sitting in the corner on a pile of Bibles and dust, this child stutters a moment before speech. When Grandpa said mouth, he pointed at the fixtures that made me a woman. Born into a house of mirrors. Would you be this other man? Let loose the words into the heavy fog. Would we wrap ourselves in the body of the same flag? Polish our lives with the tongues of our children. You began all this writing so many years ago. Inverted words under my skin. In a trance you become my reflection. Swallowing your shards, these seams ruptured and fell open like the noise in your voice. Stitching tales into my story. I am told I am of the father. Fathers. Reaped from the ash of untended graves. I sit close to the edge of the uneven grass. With the wind spitting such heavy gusts, I cannot open my eyes to see that this grass has grown over all of the names. I want to remember our stories, Grandpa, to fill this emptying, the beginning of memory. In a room, I find a match. We light it. 
The flame has an obese belly, arms reaching back to stir the water. Little girls fit better in corners. Okay. So I'm just going to skip around a little bit. Grandpa never offered me anything with his hands. He placed an apple on the table in the circle of light, dropping down from a glass and gold-rimmed lamp, slightly swaying over our heads. He avoided my palm, my eyes. For my father, his brother, and two sisters, it was a carrot. He dangled it in front of their faces to teach them hunger, sliced it into thin orange coins, and placed it on their tongues, over their eyes. He raised it just out of reach of the children's hands, nails cut close to the skin, scraping at the air, mouths wet with a want of carrot. When they could not reach the carrot, they stood on the backs of their children and craned towards the light. Children on the backs of their children. We covered our faces to hide us from the brightness. We breathe the breath caught between the mask and our faces. We are profane in our inversion of tradition, Grandpa whispers. His death is my hiatus. I should never have stopped my infant movements across the floor by hands and knees, this closeness to the ground, the earth receiving my handprints. I reached the rim of the house where Grandpa reinvented history, cut by hands on the glass windows. Always knew there were never any doors for her because she was a girl. She was a child that never spoke. The murmur of insects seeps through the shattered glass. I'm a girl rooted between letters and censored out of the body of his ancient language. Grandpa tore from the single symbol of our name a string, bounded around the tongues of the girls in my family, tethered the boys with a tale of sounds. The broken language slipped into veins to burn their memories of all this chaos. Half inside the house, Moons relieves a paper torn from military documents, English translations, coloring books, stories caught on the rigid glass, knees in a gutter of flies. I move my open mouth, hoping to produce screams. This body has begun to shudder against the shards embedded in my skin, sounds erupting from the hemorrhage. My body vibrates with a setting storm. We are ourselves one body, kabuki masks of a diluted clan, Facial features spread out like silt, crossed with white mothers and white fathers until we are only connected by the thread of a vein, a name. The stories are pieced together over the pulse of blood, and we are all versions of breast, bone, and ligament. Your lips are muscles of speech, Grandpa. They lock on your stories. They suffocate mine. Grandma's card sealed in all the shadows of the body. Her thin veined fingers twist flowers from their stems. She fought in the petals, out between pages of memory and other people's words, notebooks of dirt, rock, and soil, between the cross and the cross. They dried slowly, smashed between worlds, their milk burst against the page, and their breath turned into ash. She tucked them into the folds of her mouth and turned them into God's words, arranged the bodies of pressed flowers into the blank spaces for constructing cards, pushed them around with her narrow, filed nails until they had formed the face of God. Her children became flowers pressed and flattened, obeying the guidance of her fingertips, wounding the air with this thinning of stories, of souls. When the flowers became the no mask of God, she sealed them in with contact paper, flowers that became the martyr of the body. A rash of consequences when we deny our body the spirit of our original bone. Right. That's the section called Momotaro, Little Peach Boy. I read The Little Peach Boy through the reminiscences inside my grandmother's stories. I never knew what the symbols were trying to tell me, what the black wooden creatures meant. 
I read them as bodies moving through a forest. Skeletons without their mirror. Tree, tree houses erected between warmer seasons. I read these lines outside of my family's, family's language in order to unname. I spread out open, brittle, becoming. Changed my shape, shifting between fears and desire. My fingertips only remain in sameness. The map of, the map of my body controlled. Grandpa, the cartographer. Trapping tight the stories of the skin. The broken home, pieced back together with the wires of a ventriloquist. Fingers that blush with heavy movement. The walls all falling down. My father was hushed, deprived of volume and the spaces of Japanese skin. He hangs his body, a tent against the noon sky. He sweats and coats the air in steam. The hangmen in the family are all the same color. They stand themselves upright, swinging their bodies against the pitch of the wind. We broke out of wonder. Our bodies in the middle of a healing spell were broken again. My grandfather told me I am not still enough to surrender. Not the stillness of reflection or the moment of hands, but the kind that is like a broken mouth. All these broken mouths. Broken mouth. You are a paradigm of shapes, he says. He points to the oval of my face and the slits in my body. Open wider, he says. She loses flight, falls toward the drought. The ground writing her name in splintering bone. The symbols open like a leaflet of what can exist, these myths holding the family together. Small children with limbs lifting away, bound to the unliving of their stories, already a fragment. All right, a couple more short sections. All right, this is called Yonsei. Dear Grandpa, is that you dragging your feet again? The needle I fixed through my own torso from back to front is slowly losing its temper. I am polarized, pulled at the joints and spinning around the stem of your desire. Silence in a quartered box. They cry tears for you and buff your infamous dead. The insects revolving on an axis of gray, your steep pens that prick and pierce like incisors, like those men sweating their names on my back. I want to be your blossom grandpa. You told me that naming is sacred. Your typewriter clicks, small high heel steps on tile, anchor my name and word. I am the shrapnel of the family, your death, your granddaughter. Cancer crept through his catacombs, his skeleton worn ragged like country gravel, eyes like saffron. The memories fade, I can count on this, but have left their signatures. They leave rumors under pillows, like the cooler pockets of tucked night. I watch his body slack, wanted to be interior to his dying. I tell myself rumors that he is not dead. There are dimples in the land where his body should be. They are tinted sepia and spreading like ink to places under my feet. The ground respires, is pocked across countries, and he is restless even in death. The stories I tell myself are faulty at best. Every inch of the road I've created in the story has marks of memories that everyone tells me are not true. I can't remember the rain. Just the warm beige sheets on his bed, the red alarm clock squatting in the light, the porcelain head of a dog that held his glasses away from the dust. Every part of me sees his death in my own way. The days were always sunny. He had radiation treatments. He was always dressed in white near the end. Grandpa could not recognize me without context. The only time I ever saw him cry in my life was the last time I was with him. I should have taken the sheets that hit his sagging body. I should have clipped the feathers that hung in his eyes. I should have tasted every tear they said he never cried. 
I am slipping inside your no mask, Grandpa. I'm a pariah to your breath. Thank you. Thank you, Jordan. Um, so next I'm going to introduce Harold Abramowitz, who's going to be reading from Blind Spot. Um, oh, awkward positioning. Okay. Um, and I'm just going to read you some words that I um, wrote about the book a while ago. Um, so this is about Blind Spot. Here, memory like a dripping faucet, slowly leaking events and considerations, one constantly feels like they are balancing on a teetering chair. This rigorous investigation of being leads one to consider the way a world revolves around a man like a vortex, the, propen the propensity of clipped phrases that alter, edit, build, revise, a constant modification of the way one sees the world, exists in the world, remembers. Repetition, like stuttering, leads one through and around the vortex of consideration, yet like poetry, the language points and articulates, then stutters again, the text as a glitchy archetype of keeping track of observation of the harmonious discontinuity of time's ebb and flow. And this is a quote from the book. There is no break in the harmony and no seeing anything but for what it is. This brilliant poetic novel weaves a new structure for narrative, forces the reader to consider the complex and profound structures hidden in a record of time, each observation of the utterly quotidian transforming into a lyrical evocation of essential significance. Each repetition is a surprise, and each consideration an impossible enigma. Narrated by a mysterious and clairvoyant consciousness, Blindspot is both blind and honest, isolated and compulsive, and achieves with such magnificent beauty a reconceptualization of seeing and reading that one might enter this book through its first lines and wish to never come out again. Um, so Harold Abramowitz is from L.A. He's a local writer. He's the author of Dear, Dearly Departed and Not Blessed and co-author of several texts. He writes and edits as part of um, several collaborative projects, and he co-edits uh, the Micropress Eohippus Labs with Amanda Ackerman. Um, he's also just a devoted literary advocate. He's done a lot for the literary community here in L.A. He's just a generous human being, a really sensitive writer. Um, so it's my honor to welcome Harold to the stage today. Uh, whoop, is that okay? That's okay? Uh, but I'm taller. Should I go back? I don't know. I don't know what to do. What do I do? Um, anyway, um, first of all, thank you. Thank you all for being here. Um, thank you to Laura and to Jordan and to um, Janice and Anya of Skylight for putting this all together. That's really, really nice. Um, and you know, I'm really, really grateful for um, Janice, who is the editor of this book, and for really making this um, happen and, and be here, which is really kind of an amazing thing that I'm still processing. And, you know, Janice just said all these beautiful things about me, and if I could, you know, do the same thing, I would just give them right back to her. So she's, no, she's really an amazing person, and um, I'm really excited about Recurrent, um, this series that, that um, has been ongoing and is continuing to go on, and I'm really excited to see what, what you know, will be coming next. And I'm really, really honored to have, uh, have work in this series. So, so um, to the book, um, this book is structured in two main sections. Um, the first section takes place in and around a hotel, and the second section takes place in and around a funeral. And I'm just going to read um, one section from 
from each. Oh, I almost forgot my, my glasses. So now it's the 1st of September, so I can actually replace the lenses, but I haven't done that yet. So my insurance has renewed, so that's very exciting. The fall. Yay for the fall. Okay. Sad that I need more. I need more power. More. No. Okay, these will still work. All right. Um, so the f- first section is, um, this is Hotel 7. The deceptions of ghosts, or not of ghosts, are not of anything at all. It was peace that sustained the war, a matter of oppositions. And in that discontinuity, that continuity, because it was reversible, he stood and watched as the other guests entered the hotel. They, the other guests, entered the hotel through the lobby, a never-ending stream. And there was home to think about as well, a thought as definite as any other. The moment he left his room, and this trouble, really troubling thoughts, when there was something at stake, some matter of honor or another, something specific to the war or to war in general at least. It was in the room that these thoughts occurred to him, provoked him, tiny thoughts, not even the thoughts he'd intended to consider. And there was a kind of absolute silence spawned by perhaps a deepening sense of victory, or rather of entitlement, and yet there was no stage, no stage specifically nor even a place for the guests to go and be entertained. Still they, the other guests, seemed to eat a lot. In the garden. There was a seat in the garden. There were several seats beside him in the garden. It was a beautiful day. The sun was out and the birds were singing in the air. A home in the forest, so to speak. And all men require a home in the forest. At one time, and those were seemingly days of greater purity, men lived in the forest. There was no violation. There was no particular code of honor that had to be followed. It was simple, really. The men, the other guests, lived in the forest for a time, and then they left and continued with their lives, their businesses, their personal development, and so on. It is in this way that the days continue. He is alone in a hotel. This is neither a break nor a vacation, not exactly. He is on assignment. He is at the hotel for a specific reason, or he is on leave for a specific reason. In either case, he is not living his usual schedule, not performing his usual tasks and duties in their usual ways, nor at their usual times. In fact, he has had to call home. His vacation has lasted longer than expected, and this, this situation, his condition, the condition he finds himself in, has already caused unimaginable problems for the world, for the world at large. It has already caused a great deal of consternation and pain and suffering, and luck or ill luck or bad omens have had nothing to do with it. It is pain. There once was pain. He is lying in bed in his hotel room. It is a perfect night. He is high in the mountains. The air is sweet and the atmosphere is ideal. All his pain will be absorbed by the mountain air. The aroma, the simple smell of trees and of flowers, living flowers and of air, clean air, will help heal him of all that ails him. It is this benefit, one among many, that the hotel offers, that the hotel is, in fact, famous for. He remembers this fact. The memory of this fact comes to him suddenly. It is something that pulls at him while he drives the car, or rather, while he is driven in a car. The hotel he is to visit will be beneficial for him. Then the car breaks down. There's a problem with the car, and he has to pull over to the side of the road. That is, the driver has had to pull the car over to the side of the road. The car is large, but appears to be in good condition, if a little old and not quite in the current style or fashion. There is a pen in his hand, and he's about to write a letter. He has just finished writing a postcard. There is a certain anticipation as the car winds its way up the mountain road, a certain sense of curiosity as the car approaches the hotel. 
The hotel is large and laid out in a very complex way. There is a real, almost indescribable complexity to the way the hotel is laid out. And, in fact, he is not sure at first that he belongs in such a fashionable place or among such exclusive company. The hotel is very elegant and very famous for its proximity to certain curative regions, specific areas that seem to cure people of what ails them. The hotel is beautiful and expensive, and the guests generally stay there for a very long time, often for consecutive seasons. As he stands and watches the other guests enter the hotel, he is aware of how easily they are accommodated how easily the hotel and its massive size and complexity is able to absorb them, other guests who arrive in a never-ending stream and then no sooner seem to disappear. This is the miracle of the hotel, of all hotels, of this hotel in particular. It is part of its mystery and fascination and charm. This information, of course, pertains to the old hotel, to the one that burned to the ground. Still, there is a question of trouble specifically the trouble of blocking out certain stimuli. And the question becomes the hotel itself, or rather it becomes a game he plays in the hotel. He is standing in the hall. He is standing next to a small table in the hall. There is a vase filled with flowers on the table. He is at his seat in the bar, the seat from which he is able to observe the lobby and the grand staircase. He is outside the lounge. He is in the lounge. He is in his room. He is eavesdropping on the guests in the room next to his. There is, of course, a form for all of this, an unspoken language, and an unguessed-at consequence. And this consequence, of course, depends on his actions, on how and in what manner he will choose to carry himself. And this line of thinking inevitably leads to his next decision, the spontaneous decision that will propel events to their conclusion. It is already a conclusion of sorts that has just occurred, this meandering of his, this standing around the periphery of the hotel, He is standing in the hall, and this, too, has its consequences, a change that takes place unexpectedly, a rapid deployment of his qualities of service. There is, of course, much more to be said, and it also inevitably will be said at some point. But here it suffices to become the picture, the display, so to speak, of a kind and gentle turn of events, of a barely spoken of purpose, of points of fact, and then of their contraries. What occurs is occasional. There's a a peculiar resistance on his part to contact, to unexpected social contact especially. And despite the weather, the weather has been nice, and despite the unseasonable and difficult weather, it is really the season that he finds himself responding to. That, in particular, voices. Not so much their content, but the quality, timber, of the speech itself. And this causes something to change within him. A change of perspective that can only be characterized by its utter lack of perspective, or of joy, or of any other quality, positive or negative, that he can imagine. It just is what it is, and there is no telling what form it will take from one moment to the next. Essentially, it is in its power to make mistakes. It is his right to have come to this place in spite of his intention, of his clear intention. Okay, and now we move to funeral. This is a funeral section three. Three. There were icons in the backyard, not really icons, but things, objects, a collection of some sort. Things, icons, really. And the sight of it, that collection of objects, those things, objects, icons, really, reminded him of death. It was late one night. Really, it was night, and he was tired, but he didn't go to sleep. The idea of food bothered him, attracted him, and bothered him. He'd eaten in a restaurant, had earlier that night eaten alone in a restaurant. 
and the things, the collection of objects, the icons, the plants and trees and flowers in the backyard and on the streets, everywhere, all of it, those things, reminded him of death. There was a dog on the street. The dog was running down the street. The dog did not appear to be in distress in any way, yet still there was something about the sight of the dog that bothered him. It was a large event, an occasion, a funeral, and there were many friends, associates, and relatives, and others, other people who stood in the open air that day. There was the sound of the eulogy and the sound of the prayers, the sound of crying. A body was being buried and turned. It was a solemn occasion, a funeral, an event that had required planning. There had been the threat of death for years, even the threat of death specifically on certain occasions. And there was something in his eye, something small, an object, something foreign, some foreign matter in his eye that from time to time bothered him. The sad part was that it was not a significant event. The funeral, in fact, was not a significant event at all. And still there was a question of waiting. There was waiting to be done. Always plenty, always plenty of waiting to be done. He'd waited for her by the door of the cafe. On another occasion, he'd waited for her on the street. On still another occasion, he'd sat and waited for her at a table in the restaurant. And then, in those days, he was usually on time, or often early, when he'd had an arrangement to meet with someone. The icons, the things, the collection of objects, the things, icons really, in the backyard reminded him of death. It had been months or years, it had been long, had been a long time since he'd been in that neighborhood, in that part of the city, in the backyard at night. And there was more. There was, of course, much more to say about the situation, about all the situations he found himself in. But there was something in the way. A truck or car or bus, something, a vehicle of some sort, was blocking his way. He was standing in the middle of the street, waving, gesturing wildly, somewhat wildly, humiliatingly in a way, doing a kind of dance, almost a dance, trying to catch their attention. But there was something in the way. They, his friends, associates, entered the cafe through the front door, the door that faces the street. The day he'd waited for her had turned out badly. It was bad, a bad day. Yet it was a day, a period of time that he knew, somehow just knew, understood to be significant. In fact, he'd been aware that it, the day, the days, those days in general, meant something. Still, he couldn't see any way of going back, of returning to where he'd been before. Things seemed to get worse things seemed to get worse after that, though he'd expected, had of course expected things to get better. He was waiting for her in the cafe or restaurant. It was late one night and he was tired. And at that point, anyone would have been tired. Still, there was no way of avoiding it. This fact, the signs. There was an open door, a green, a red door. He walked through the open door and into a great room. The room was filled with light. It was filled with the most beautiful light he had ever seen. And there had to be something to fill the days. There had to be some miracle in the works, something. Something good was about to happen. He just knew it. Or the way he looked as he stood, standing. And there are strict rules, laws, directives, strict prohibitions governing the handling of human remains. There were complications, however. Things happened unexpectedly, and the complications appeared or things changed literally overnight. He could see his friends, associates, turn the corner and approach the front door of the cafe. He waved, gestured wildly, somewhat wildly, humiliatingly in a way, did a kind of dance, almost a dance, trying to get their attention. There were icons, things, objects, a collection of some sort, things, icons really, all around the backyard. It was night and dark, and there was very little wind. 
He was visiting a neighborhood, a part of the city. It was dark, very dark, much darker than he was accustomed to. He was standing in the backyard and there were various objects, icons, things, a collection of some sort, things, icons really, hanging from, being, hanging from beams and from walls and on the ground. Wind chimes and small statues, a stone turtle and other things, objects, icons really. His friends, associates, sat at a table in the cafe. And the cafe was very beautiful at that point. Still there was something wrong or there was something missing. There was the feeling, generally, generally speaking, that there was something wrong, that something was in fact missing or even stolen perhaps. He sat and looked out the cafe window. He sat for a long time and stared out the front window of the cafe, the one that faced the sidewalk in the street. And it was not long after that, the funeral. It was early or late, and it was time for him to go. He had to leave his place. He left his place early or late, or it could have been at night or in the evening. He went to work. He was on his way to do his job. And on that day, things were indeed bound to change. Yet still at that point, there was time. There was still time. He had time then at that point, time to spare. He bought stamps and stamped a letter and put the letter in the mailbox. And then he'd gone to work, had gone to do his job. It was later that day. It was after work, and there were stamps and there were stamps in his wallet. He'd intended to take the stamps out of his wallet and put them away in a drawer. Yet each time he'd opened the drawer, opened his wallet, and that day had been a surprise. It was so unpredictable. The ways the day, any day, could possibly go. There was a collision of sorts, a violent collision on the street outside the cafe. And earlier that day, he'd waited for her on the street. He sat in the cafe, a restaurant, and waited. And there were others at the funeral, others, observers, recorders, if you will. And then there was the sound of glass breaking, the sound somewhere off in the distance, perhaps, of glass breaking. The icons, the things, the collection of objects, the things, icons really, in the backyard were made of wood and metal, mostly, or mostly made of wood and stone, or mostly made of plastic, or made of plastic and wood and metal and stone, and even ceramic and some glass. And there was no denying that something significant had happened, that indeed something had changed. He bought stamps in the morning on his way to work. In the meantime, there were arrangements, preparations to be made. It was a solemn occasion, a funeral, an event that had required planning. There was a dog on the street. There was a dog running down the street, and the dog was not in distress or did not appear to be in distress in any way. The dog ran up the street, seemingly carefree, in seemingly a carefree manner, yet still there was something sad in the way the dog ran. To him there was a sadness, a real and profound sadness in the way the dog ran up the street. Yet he was not typically one to feel sentimental over animals. He had no particular appreciation for animals, had never really paid that much attention to animals. There was a room, and he tried to see what the room looked like. There was a bed in the room and a chair and bookcases, most likely the room he slept in, the room where he spent his time. He feels, he feels that the most likely answer is that he has happened upon the room where he slept, the room where he spends his time. It was difficult to see in the dark, however. But after staring at the room for a while, he was sure that it was the place. Still, at one time, he feels the room might have been slightly different, maybe painted a different color, or there might have been different furniture. Thank you. Questions, if 
That was a wonderful reading. Wow. Thank you so much. <laughs> Any questions? No questions. No, I have a question. Can you tell us about the little bookmarks that are in your book? Um, these little bookmarks. <laughs> these are these are actually um, kitty sticky pointers <laughs> that um, are available for you as well for a dollar fifty at the. Daiso store in Little Tokyo. So they're, they're good. I recommend them highly. <laughs> I'll ask a question. Huh? Um, if either or both of you want to talk at all about the role of any nonfiction or influences on your books, you're on. Oh, wow. <laughs> navigating between, you know, taking something that is nonfiction and uh, incorporating it into a fiction piece. That's a tough question. Uh, Ask myself that, self that. I think every day. Well, once. Let's see, I think that the nonfiction part of it, because it, for me, it started as nonfiction. It started as kind of a moment, kind of a rupture, a trauma, and I started writing about that. And I think in order to access a different set of emotions, a different language, I had to move into fiction. I think if. It just allowed me. It, I guess it opened up another space, and it actually allowed me more freedom than the kind of the nonfiction aspect of it. Um, and and honestly, in a lot of ways, once I kind of let that go, once I stopped, you know, trying to adapt it to a genre, and I I was able to kind of write in a space where I guess I could just really put anything down on the page. Revising it is a different story, but I think in the initial space. Um, for me, everything kind of starts in a place of nonfiction, kind of in memoir. And I think if you allow the story to go in the direction that it should, you know, it's it's all just kind of a, I don't know, a different thread that's still attached to you. You're still kind of tethered to it in a way. I don't know if that makes any sense, or if I just talked in circles. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll just say, I mean, this this book, this is a really interesting question, Laura. Um, this book has a really complicated relationship with nonfiction that I'm still, you know, kind of trying to tease out. Um, it really is porous in, in a lot of ways. I mean, it was written conscientiously as as narrative, you know, some some type of narrative, um, but it does have a complicated relationship. I don't want to. If I say a lot, you know, it's, it'll spoil it. But <laughs> it's true. But it is interesting to think about, you know. The reciprocal relationship between those two things and how they, you know, become very, very porous and pass through each other in a text, you know. So, um, I, I recently came across a poet, uh, African American poet Keith Wilson, who writes from the trauma, and there's a real redemptive quality. Um, it's it's a harrowing, fractured narrative. Um, that he establishes in his poems, and it's coming from a kaleidoscopic, every possible point of view and direction. Um, and it's very complex and interesting and lovely, and it unfolds. Just, ju it's just heroic, really, to what it is. And I, it just makes me wonder when people are dealing with the language of trauma, um, if it always implies redemption. I think it's always, always searching for that redemption. Um, language of trauma, that's a really good question. Um, I guess I can only really kind of talk to kind of my experience writing, writing the book. Um, 
I found, you know, in the first, I don't know, three or four iterations of it, um, that I was using the same language over and over and over again. It was redundant, and you know, I'd, I just kept on writing towards something, writing in, but I couldn't quite get underneath those layers, you know. And I think trying to access a different language allowed me to, in a lot of ways, like Laura, you know, like excavate. I think that there's a language that's there that we can use to move through trauma, move it out of our bodies or move it around in our bodies in a different way. And I think that you have to hammer at it. <laughs> like I did, I mean, I really did. I went through, I mean, I just found myself almost just repetitively, like repeating these lines, you know. And, uh, and so I, f- I knew that that was the point of entry, but I needed to find kind of what was, what I could get to below that. So, but... And the redemption kind of came in accessing something that was able to, you know, as because it is part memoir and part fiction, something that was able to really, I guess, shake something loose. And I don't think I could do that through traditional language. So it took uh, a lot of kind of trial and error and being angry and then, you know, language of pity and language of sadness and language of love until I got to a place where I could put words in a sentence that finally mapped out kind of the emotion I was trying to move through. Yeah, um, this this book was written in a, you know, it was really a product of, of trauma and trauma is really, I mean, that word came up with both of these texts and I think that's really the, the you know, obviously a strong link between them. Um, in terms of redemption, it's that's a, it's an interesting question because, you know, the per, my personal experience of writing it and and what I went through, I don't know if it would be redemption, but there's definitely a passing through and releasing of trauma. Um, as far as the trauma that exists in the book, a lot of it is really is really um, explicitly about no redemption. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, you know, causes certain causes of trauma and those who cause trauma and and you know is really um, really about. You know, the, the, really the absolute, um, you know, impossibility of redemption around, around certain acts of trauma. So, hard question, though. Yeah, <laughs> you said that, uh-huh. I'd, like, I'd like to interject. So, who, yeah, who writes in that behavior for you? Who, who would be a predecessor who writes? Um, just uh, no redemption. Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I, I have to, I'd have to think about that one, you know. I mean, my mind, you know, my mind maybe goes, I mean, some some of this book was inspired by um, some of the French new novelists, I think of maybe some of the characters like in Robe-Crier or, you know, maybe maybe Beckett and some of those 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 types of, uh, of writings. Yeah, and there's also a lot of, of non-redemption in some ways, too. I mean, you know, just, just in terms of the trauma of the of the century and maybe that, that, you know, World War II generation, maybe there's some of that, that part of it. But again, it's, I mean, I can't answer the question. Of, you know the ultimate answer, redemption. I mean, redemption is a really interesting word. I don't, I don't know if it's a word I use okay. myself. I, you know, there's transcend, transcendence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but transcendence and redemption are, are different to me. I mean, just personally, they have a different, you know. Yeah. Um, question. Yeah, um, it, it went um, 
they went through a lot of revision. So there's a lot of it's like um, at some point, at some point you can, I mean, it can hopefully it can be heard. It's like scoring music and and, and getting it. So so that those elements, right? After writing it for the first time, there are many many you know many many um, times going back through it, working on just the just just the rhythmic qualities of it, you know. So, but a lot of going over that over and over again. So the the compulsiveness, you know. Compulsiveness of the act and the compulsiveness of the text are very, you know, interrelated. So. Well, uh, if that's <laughs> it for the questions, let's give another hand to Jordan. <laughs>You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.